If you find value in the show, please share it and review it. If you want to support the show even further, you can leave a tip or set up recurring support via the links in the show notes or on the website. Thanks again for listening, sharing, and learning with me. Now, on to this week's show. Welcome, welcome. This is Talking to the Internet. It is my privilege and honor to have Jeff Veen with us today. Uh, Jeff is a design partner at True Ventures. He is the host of a design podcast uh, on the Relay FM network called Presentable. He is formerly the founder of Typekit and Adaptive Path. Uh, he's been in a design leadership at Google and Adobe, and he was a designer at Wired Magazine. So Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Hey, Corey. Thanks so much. It's, it's great to be here. So you have an interesting past. Right, you have an interesting path, <laughs> I would say, and not interesting in a good or a bad way, but it's yeah, um, yeah. it's different than some of the folks that we've had on the show um, up until this point. So, can you tell us kind of how you got into talking to the internet? How you know what's your story? Sure, sure. Well, we'll have to go way back because I started when on all this internet stuff, uh, perhaps even before some of your your listeners may have been born. Um, I was, uh, I was just incredibly fortunate to be what I felt like at the right place at the right time. I, I had like, I studied in college. I studied journalism. I was always very into computers and being online and things like that. Going, going back before the internet into, into the world of like bulletin boards and modems and way back. Uh, and I, I felt like those two things, that technology and, and publishing, kind of came together in the early and mid-1990s, uh, right when I was sort of leaving college and entering my career, uh, to, to just afford opportunity that was, uh, I don't know, just uh, amazing to me. So, so kind of going back, I, I, early 90s, I, I got out of college. Uh, I, I was working as a journalist. I had studied journalism in college, working at a newspaper in Santa Barbara. Uh, and I found a copy of this. I, I remember this. Yeah, actually, I went to a party and found this copy of this magazine that I had never seen before called Wired. And it was the first ever issue, uh, uh, issue one. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, there's, there's other people on the internet. Like <laughs> people are talking about this stuff. Like I felt, you know, I knew that there were people on like, you know, I was online and stuff like this. It's probably 1993, but it was nowhere in culture. It was this weird fringe thing, you know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. there was barely, uh, a, um, a web browser, you know, web browsers had just come out stuff like that. Uh, and so I sent this, this magazine an email cause they had an email published in their, in their masthead. And I was like, well, I'm a journalist and I, and I know how to do stuff. Here's a, here's a link, a URL to my, uh, resume, which I had put on a, uh, put on a web server, one of the few web servers that there were back then. Mm -hmm. And they wrote back saying, you're the first person to ever do that. <laughs> no one has sent us a link you know, to a, to a resume on the web. So come on up here and let's have an interview. And that just led into this internship, which then led it to a job, uh, designing one of the first commercial websites, uh, called Hotwired, which was the kind of the digital version of Wired magazine back then. Um, and that's how we kind of got started. So I think you bring up a really interesting point about being creative, about reaching out to people or putting yourself in front of people. Because um, similar story, like you sent the web URL, which kind of impressed yeah. people and like went, whoa, what, what just happened? 
well, I'm looking for a job coming out of college, um, and I ended up actually just randomly visiting a place that I thought it would be cool to work for. So it's like I was in the city at the time, and I was like, oh, this place is, is interesting, and it was it was an acoustics firm. Right? And I was like, oh, I'm just going to go see what's what's going on. I go there. They're having a, an ice cream social. Right? It's like Friday, and they're having an ice cream social, and they were like, oh, yeah, sure, come in. And it ended up leading into leading into a job offer. So it's like – I. You know, to to listeners out there, it's like if you're creative, there's chance there's a chance things could happen, right? Like as you as you're thinking about where you want to be or what you want to do, or oh yeah, there's a lot of different ways um, to to do this. So that's that's a really cool point. Okay, keep going. Yeah, no, I think there's just this no- notion. Uh, it's a trope, really, of like put yourself in a position to be lucky, uh, right? Like the luck is not just going to fall in your lap, and mm-hmm. that, and that's and and that has been kind of a the one of the kind of premises that I've run with all the time. Um, the other one being that like the, the people who are doing what you want to do are just like you, Yeah. which was, you know, and even, even back then I was like the, one of the reasons I sent a URL to my webpage is cause I thought they were so far advanced, you know, all these people working at this fancy magazine, in the big <laughs> city of San Francisco, like that they would laugh at me if I just sent a rem- resume. So I, I better do this in a, in a, quote unquote wired way. And it turns out that they were just super impressed, you know, and I got up there and met them and I was terrified. And it turns out like, oh, none of us know what we're doing. And they're just a little bit farther and have a little bit of backing and are, you know, a little bit smarter. And so it just, I don't know. It was, this is one of the, one of the things I try to teach my kids, you know, like, Hey, if you see somebody doing something that you think is cool, like ask them how they do it and see if you can do it too. And they're just like, they're just like you. Uh, yeah, so we, we built this website in the 90s. Uh, it, it was one of the first websites that had advertising on it. I'm sorry about that. But um, <laughs> it, it was an attempt to legitimize this really fringe sort of quote-unquote platform, you know. Uh, and it really worked. And it was uh, enormously successful. Um, and I think to get to kind of the point of your uh, podcast and our conversation here, uh, one of the very important lessons that I learned there was that what we were learning about making websites was something that we never considered in any way proprietary. So we thought as soon as we learn how to do something on this weird new web thing, we should also publish what we've learned in addition to publishing everything else we wow. publish. Because, um, because that'll just like, on one hand, on, on a more sort of, um, uh, kind of brand level almost, it'll kind of position us as experts a little bit. Like we're, we're trying to figure this out. And if we share what we know, people will be like, oh, they, they know a lot. Uh, and then on the other hand, it'll just make the platform better. So we never considered what we were doing on the web competitive to other websites. We were competitive with things like television and print and you know stuff like that. So we just got to make the web better because then more people will come to the web and our audience will grow. So So that kind of like, Essentially, this is a little bit like the notion of open source. Everything we lear- learn, we give back, right? And then we all benefit, and then the kind of the tide rises for everybody. So when do you think the switch happened, right? Because that's, that's very different in my mind than the internet we know now. So when did, when did it shift, roughly? Well, I'm, I'm not entirely sure it's, it's uh, very different from what we know now. I think there are certainly places that are like, never going to give back. We're going to hold all of this, all of our expertise in. Um, But I also, I still see like, if you go to stack overflow, right, just Uh, outpouring of people like, no, we're here to help. And, you know, um, 
uh, you can think of it as a kind of digital mentorship in some way. I figured something out, so let me you know, help the people who are following behind me in their careers at different stages of their careers. Um, I also think like you go to Medium and just see people sharing and sharing and sharing, that in many ways it is a way of differentiating yourself from all the other people that want the same job you want or you know, want that notoriety or, uh, or to be a quote-unquote thought leader. So, um, so I think a lot of it isn't just altruistic, which is fine, right? A lot of it is really strategic as a way of advancing my career or making my company look uh, more and more uh, competent and capable and building more trust with our audience and stuff like that. So, and I think I think that's true with with podcasting too, right? I can think of, you know, I won't name them, but it's like I can think of probably four or five different outlets where when I was trying to figure out how to do this thing, right? And I was trying to figure out what to even do or, or how to do it. You know, there were very good resource guides or very good, you know, equipment lists or, you know, this is how you structure a show kind of thing. So yeah, that, I guess that, that makes sense. Yeah. The, po- the podcast's about podcasts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yep. Yep. Okay. So, so we're at Wired and where do you go from there? Uh, Wired got acquired while I was there. They got bought by a, you, you remember the company Lycos? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was, it was a search engine that was sort of competitive with Yahoo at the time. Uh, that didn't go well at all. That was a, that was a really interesting sort of learning experience for me that this, this idea of like corporate merger or acquisition and, and things like that, uh, are generally only successful when the culture's either match or adapt to each other. And that didn't happen at all with Wired and Lycos. Uh, I left nine months after that happened, um, as did a lot of people. And, and, uh, and I went from there to... Uh, actually, one of the things I did, we, we then started a design agency, but that was a year later. And in that intervening year, I just did more of the sort of content creation, kind of the stuff we're talking about. Uh, I wrote a couple books. Uh, I spoke at a bunch of conferences. Uh, I really kind of invested in, I guess what now today we would kind of call personal brand. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so uh, from, from there, then uh, it was much easier to get started kind of independently to, to, uh, to start a, an agency is, is what we decided to do. Uh, we called it Adaptive Path. It was, it was a user experience agency. We did a lot of user research, information architecture, interaction design, things like that. Uh, this was concurrent with the, the dot-com bust, the sort of 2000, 2001 era, when all of the companies with, uh, that were in the internet uh, sector with their hugely overvalued um, uh, uh, valuations, their hugely overpriced valuations, uh, the, all of that sort of crumbled and, and so many of those companies shut down and so much of the investment that had happened in building this new platform on the web felt like it was going away. And so we started this very small, there were seven of us, uh, company, agency, as an attempt to say, look, here's a path through, here's a way to fix your broken digital strategy and websites and, uh, and things like that. Um, built on that same sort of open source knowledge sharing, really. Like we did a bunch of publishing a uh, bunch of blog posts and uh, and things like that. Um, we uh, did a lot of speaking at conferences and doing our own workshops. Uh, we developed a methodology around how to improve the efficacy of products by doing user-centered design. And we took all of the content we made and made it as free as we possibly could because we realized that the value was in, frankly, our performance of it, it right? Like people would read these uh 
these books and reports and uh, blog posts and CR talks and go like, that's what we want to do at this company. Can we have you come and help us mm -hmm. do that? Mm -hmm. And the consulting was super lucrative, uh, whereas the content we just gave away for free. So again, kind of the same model. So, so how much was the design work supporting the way people talked on the internet? And, and, and when I say this, so when I think of talking on the internet, um, and I, I pretty much say this every show, so I'm sorry, but it's like, it's, <laughs> it's so broad, right? It doesn't have to just be talking to a microphone or blogging or like, you know, writing an article. I mean, you're doing, you're helping internet-based companies design their user interface and design their user experience, right? Which is a form of talking to the internet, right? The way content is presented to me. So how do you see those connections there? Oh, for sure. I mean, um, we did some really fundamental work helping organizations to develop a digital strategy for the first time. So for example, we built an architecture and a navigation system for the entire archives of National Public Radio in the United States. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so all of those recordings had been digitized, but were all sitting on giant internal servers with a bunch of metadata, you know, to get super technical. Um, and, uh, and none of it was accessible, and we, they didn't... And we, they, they had plans for how they wanted to roll that out, but we went in and sort of led a bunch of that work. So that's a really good example of taking a tremendous amount of content and just making it accessible. Uh, and the key is that word, making it accessible, right? Findable, discoverable, uh, understandable, uh, usable. Uh, in many ways, even a, de a delightful experience for finding your way around so much content. So that was really kind of that first era of the internet, which was... Uh, we are going to take the tremendous amount of content that has been uh, generated for decades and try to bring that to this new platform in a way that anybody can access. Uh, we also did a bunch of work on what was called back then kind of Web 2.0. Mm -hmm. um, that was, again, in the early 2000s, 2002, 2005 era, roughly, where... Uh, we started to learn how we, how web apps w were going to work. That it, the web wasn't just going to be a series of hypertext documents, but instead could be really interactive and could, in many ways, replace a lot of the desktop apps that people had used. Right. So you'd get things like Google Docs, yeah. or you'd get things like instead of using uh, Adobe Lightroom, you would use Flickr, and it would uh, the the kind of defining aspect of it was the ability to share with each other and comment on each other's sharing and uh, to use that sort of interconnected social graph as a way to discover things that were really interesting. Now, that is kind of the core of how the internet is working or not today, right? Mm -hmm. Which is this idea of like the people with whom I'm connected um, are the lens with which I view the world. And so... We did a bunch of work with Flickr. We did a bunch of work with Blogger back then um, as this core fundamental uh, idea of the means for production of media are now democratized, right? That they are now in the hands of everybody. Uh, I think, you know, in retrospect, that was a very important step to take. Uh, and now we have seen that our propensity to share and connect with each other can also manifest itself in, uh, in abuse and deception. And those, those tools that we helped develop 
15, 20 years ago are very powerful for both. And our society is sort of reflecting on that and dealing and grappling with that now. But at the time, it didn't exist at all. So, um, so yeah, that period of time, that Web 2.0 period of time, I think we've really kind of cut our teeth on how, how, is this, how does this work at all? if anybody can put a photo online and millions of people can see it or just attend people that they really want to see it. Like, what does that mean? And how do we do this? Yeah, what, were, what were you using to communicate? Right. So you're doing user experience design. So my assumption is you're doing things like AB testing, right? Where you're, you're showing two different forms of a site and you're trying to get feedback from real users on that. Is that, is that a fair assumption? Yeah. I mean, user research is often sort of very broadly categorized in qualitative and quantitative, right? The quantitative side, the very sort of metrics driven, lots of data tracking and an analysis and statistical analysis of that data is a very, very important thing. I did a lot of work on that with Google. We can talk about that in a little bit. But what we focused on in the first sort of decade of this was very, very qualitative because there was there was already so much happening on the quantitative side, but very, very little on the qualitative side, which is the things like sociology, anthropology, psychology. How does that stuff apply to what we're doing with interfaces and the nuts and bolts of interaction design? So most of the work we did was around observing users mm, as okay. they used products and, and then trying to analyze what we saw and what we heard from them in their own language. So lots of usability testing, lots of uh, what we called contextual inquiry, which is watching how people work and then trying to observe and see where they have problems in their work or their lives for that matter, uh, when they're trying to accomplish tasks. And then I teasing out what the problems were and then trying to find solutions for those problems. Yeah, that, uh, that taps into yeah. my qualitative researcher brain from, you know, from my PhD world. Yeah. So that's, that's really interesting. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so a lot of that work, um, yeah, is how we sort of did some of that fundamental interaction design. Wonderful. All right. So keep us going on your journey. Yeah. So at um, Adaptive Path, uh, one of the things that I learned pretty quickly was that I absolutely loved the work, uh, but not so much the business model, I guess, is, is one way to put it, which is the consulting relationship mm -hmm. and the constant need to be both in sales mode and in problem-solving mode. And, uh, and the, the, the difficulty can, that you can find in, in, in the relationships with the organizations that bring you in. I just didn't. I, I realized what I was looking for is much deeper uh, problem solving, a much deeper relationship with the users, and that I really wanted to get into product work uh, and not just the kind of product consulting. That is, like, what is it like to spend a year or two years or five years on a problem uh, rather than these six to 12 week engagements, which were kind of, you know, the standard at mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. And so I talked to the partners that I that I'd start the company with and said, what if we did our own product? And this is really interesting because there's this uh, there was this consulting design agency called 37 Signals at the time, which made a product called Basecamp, yep. which you know was really interesting. And they had made this product inside the consulting company. And then eventually they even stopped doing consulting entirely and just focused on Basecamp. But I said, what if we did a product inside of Adaptive Path? And so uh, we kind of came to the conclusion that that would be a good idea, that we should try it. Uh, and the idea was to make an analytics platform 
but specifically for social media of Web 2.0. That is, all the blogging tools that were out there had no mechanism to tell if the stuff you were blogging was effective or not. No analytics. Okay. No um, no way to measure. All we had at the time, I don't know if you're old enough to remember, but it, it, there were these little uh, little odometer-looking things, like little web counters, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. people would stick them on their website so everybody could see how many hits they got yes. to the web page. Yeah, right? like, so uh, there was no science behind that, no idea. Like you could keep reloading the page, and the number just kept going up, you know, stuff like that. And it was public, like you couldn't. Um, uh, it was uh, kind of the stone age of that kind of stuff. So we made this thing called Measure Map, which was this uh, this web app that you would integrate into your blogging platform. It would tell you how many unique visitors, like all the really basic stuff we have too, but in a very well-designed and, and accessible way. Uh, we, we launched it kind of very nascently and got an immediately a bunch of attention from uh, a bunch of companies that wanted to acquire us. They were like, nobody's done anything like this. Come work for us. And so uh, that was a, a, a kind of a pivotal decision for the design agency. Should we, uh, should we send it off to be acquired? We decided we should. We took an offer from Google to do that. I left Adaptive Path at the time to go with the product over to Google. Uh, and when we got to Google, we took the core of that analytics, what we did, uh, along with a bunch of people working on a big back-end uh, system at Google, and so we took our front end experience, put it on their back end, and um, and did a about a year and a half of design work to make that scale and function, uh, and that became Google Analytics. Oh wow. Um, wow! Wow! Yeah. So that was a absolutely remarkable experience. It taught me a tremendous amount about scale that I hadn't understood before, like the idea of like I have an idea for how this app might work. What if every single website in the world <laughs> used it tomorrow? You know, what is, you know, I learned things like, what is 100,000 queries per second? Like, how do you hold that in your mind when you're thinking about how a system is going to respond? You know, stuff like that. I just, uh, I remember getting to Google and, and, uh, you know, somebody saying, like, if you need a copy of the web, you can have your own. Like, what? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you can query it all you want. You can do analysis on it. But you can have a copy of the web if you want. I'm like, oh, things are bigger here. Yeah, exactly. So so that really helped. We're not in Kansas Um, anymore. (laughs) No, exactly. So I spent... Uh, about two and a half, three years, I think it was, at Google, doing all that kind of stuff. I, we launched Google Analytics. I sort of um, then kind of moved into a position of, of managing and directing design for all of the Google apps. So that was, at the time, you know, Blogger and Google Gmail and Calendar and all of those sort of things that now are the G Suite. Did a bunch of design work uh, around that. Uh, and then realized, like, the big company thing is not my not my jam. Um that I really enjoyed entrepre- entrepreneurship, uh, and so left Google after that to uh, to figure out what to do next. Just to clarify, because like one of the things that's that's ringing in my brain is when you say design, yeah, tell tell it to me in layman's terms. I mean, you've been doing this for a very very long time, right? Like in layman's terms, is that location of buttons, layout of links? Like, what is design in this in this space? Oh, sure. There's a whole stack that we can talk about with what design really is. Um, the, the, I mean, ultimately, at the highest level, I think design is taking this, the, the capabilities of a system, a di- like a technical system, and exposing them to people in a way that they will find all those terms I used before, usable and delightful and intuitive and, and things like that. What I have found in the, na- in the course of my career is that the more influence that the people who are designing 
the, the interface to the system have on how the backend system works, the better the, the whole product will be. So, uh, so in many ways, I, I mean, like, what are the features of this product? So when we were, for example, we're just talking about Google Analytics. When we sat down to figure out, like, what should Google Analytics be? I didn't sit there at the table saying, like, well, it should probably have some tabs at the top uh, and probably some charts that look like this. Like, I, we didn't get to that for a long time. What we had to figure out was, like, what do people really need to improve their websites. You have to be familiar with Lean Startup. You have to be familiar with customer oh. discovery, like, you know, Steve Blank's stuff and Eric Reese and all that stuff. You have to be, don't you? Well, I would say that a lot, <laughs> a lot of the Lean Startup stuff is interpretations of the user experience stuff that we were doing 10 years before. Uh, interesting. Yeah, so for sure. Um, of course, uh, understanding that the, the needs, desires, once the tasks people have to do, you have to have a deep, deep understanding of that, right? Before you can even begin to figure out how a system should respond and how it, what the technology should be, you have to start from user needs. And so, uh, so we called that UX design, okay. user experience design. Uh, there are layers and layers of that. There are like the, the, the architecture, the information architecture of the system underneath right? Before you ever get to an interface, like how does, how is this all the content or all the features, how is that all organized in a way that maps to the way people will expect it to work? Like that's a bunch of work and it's super abstract and there's lots of boxes with arrows pointing at them and stuff in your, in your little diagrams for how everything's going to work. Uh, on top of that is what I've been calling interaction design. Like what are all the mechanisms, right? Like we have all this new interaction design that came with touch screens and mobile. Like, should we use this? And every time there's a new version of, uh, uh, of our mobile operating systems, there's new little affordances that we can use for how we explain little bits and how it should work. And so uh, that all seems really intuitive. And then on top of that, you have visual design, right? Like, what, is, what are things actually gonna look like? What color are they? Like, at what rate do we round the corners of the buttons so that they, <laughs> right? Like all of that level of detail bubbles up to then like the brand overall of the company that is making the thing so that this feels like it comes from this company and resonates with all the brand values that the company have. So it's enormous, the scope of when I use the word design of what I'm really referring to. And the, the funny thing about it too is like, I mean, I don't know anything about this um, other than, maybe the one portion you talked about. So in, in my graduate school work, you know, I was part of teaching engineers how to be more entrepreneurial, right? So yeah. we used things like Lean Startup. We used things like um, customer discovery process and all that stuff. And and our goal was basically just get them, you know, they're engineers. So they want to go feature, 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 feature. And our goal was saying, you know, hey, let's think about the three necessary features and not the 15 that you really want to put into this. And let's let the users tell us that, right? And then like, so that that's an interesting component to me. And then the other interesting component to me is like, you talk about design, you talk about all the different layers of design. I could never actually develop all of those on my own or like think about developing all of those on my own. But boy, I could tell you when somebody's done it like in a way that it doesn't resonate with me. It's like, totally. oh, oh that, those, those buttons are too square. They look, they just look weird. They look funny. I don't know what's wrong with them. I don't know that they just need this tweak or that tweak. Wow, that's, it's so... So what you do on the day to day is is uh is really interesting. It's really really fascinating from somebody who sits, you know, maybe a little bit more on the um, uh, engineering side of things as opposed to the design uh, side of things. That's that's really cool. 
Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of sort of craft that goes into it, right? Like, how do you actually take this disparate set of features and and synthesize them into a whole that is harmonious, right? And and uh, and looks and feels great and and intuitive and uh, accessible. Uh, but then there's this whole other part of like before anybody writes a single line of code, we have to be really, really sure that everything we're going to build is going to be is going to map to ex expectations that people have, right? That are actually going to f uh, fill the need that people have in their lives for what this thing does. Uh, and so uh, that's why I find like, look, my whole career has been around fighting for designers, the people who think about this stuff, the people who are out there talking to users all the time to have a seat at the table at the highest level in our organizations, at the highest level, mm -hmm. like chief product officer, chief design officer, because the decisions that are happening up there about what the business the company should be in and how they should achieve their goals, what they should do and what they shouldn't do, the prioritization, where resources are allocated, all of that should come from what do our users need? Who are they? What right? How can we best satisfy them? Because yeah. else, none of it's going to work. None of it will. All right. So, I hope I don't skip too far. Um, get us to starting presentable, right? Joining Relay FM, um, getting the podcast up and going. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, the 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 quick jump forward was after I left Google, we started a company with one of the um, uh, one of the, one of the people I worked with at a data. At, adaptive path called Typekit, which brought fonts to the web. That was a, a startup from scratch. We got venture capital funding. Uh, we, uh, we built that out. It was really successful. It grew really, really rapidly, which was good because we learned how scale worked at Google, right? So yeah, yeah. Uh, we were able to scale that up. Uh, a few years later, we sold that to Adobe. And, uh, and from there, I became vice president of design at Adobe and, and led the transition of, the, uh, of Adobe from it's kind of box software model to the creative cloud okay. and using again, all that user experience stuff. I did uh, all of the design work that kind of sat on top of that transition. Uh, I stayed there for about three years uh, and again, came back to the conclusion, big company thing, not for me. And I uh, got an offer from the venture capital firm that invested in Typekit to come be a partner. Uh, and I thought, well, that'd be, Wow, how, that's so different. I never even considered yeah. that before. To be an investor, and they said that they had become, we had become very good friends and very close uh, with a number of them uh, over the relationship of Typekit and the financing and the acquisition and all of that stuff. Uh, and we sort of worked out this thesis, this premise that uh, actually the application of user experience principles that I have been promoting for 25 years now, when applied to a company at its absolute nascent very beginning, right? Literally two co-founders with a pitch deck ready to get started. Mm -hmm. we, we apply all this stuff that you and I have just been talking about for the past 20 minutes. We apply that to a, uh, we apply that to a brand new company, do a DNA transfer, and it reduces the risk and you get more return on your investment. Oh yeah. So that's, that. Right. So that's what we're working on. Uh, uh, and now, it's a very roundabout way of getting to why did I start a podcast. Uh, what I found while doing that work was that uh, I needed to stay kind of abreast with what's happening in the user experience world without practicing it. 
like mm-hmm. I always had. Okay. Like I had been for 20 years or 25 years, been very up to date with what's happening in the user experience because I was doing it every day. And now suddenly I wasn't. And I was like, well, how am I going to keep in, on top of this? Like read medium posts all day or yeah, <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I was like, I know what I'll do. I will go find all the experts in the world on user experience and ask them if they talk to me for an hour. And I'll record it, and that will be both the discipline for me uh, and an avenue for additional learning because I fundamentally believe in the growth mindset and that I should – every single day there's more opportunity for learning. Mm-hmm. So that, that was my motivation was to make sure I just stayed on top of what's happening in the world in a way that like set a deadline for me so I would actually do it. Yeah, so the, the deadline of the – the weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, whatever, end, whatever yeah. you end up finalizing on, right? That show is the necessary driver. Um, how did you, I mean, you have, you had clout, I would say you had some, mm-hmm. you know, cachet in the industry, right? So my guess is an email from you looks a little bit different, but did you, did you find yourself having trouble getting folks to come on the show? Uh, no, no, not really. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, it it is entirely driven by my uh, short attention span. Like, what oh, what should we learn about in this week? You know, let me go figure out who and who would be good and stuff like that. But yeah, you know, after a bunch of years, decades, you know, uh, I've got a pretty good network. Like, you know, that's another thing. Going back to the beginning of our conversation and just like asking people. You know, is a good way to build up a bunch of relationships over the course of many, many years where at this point in my career, I feel like, oh, okay, I I have a good sense of if if I want to reach out to somebody, I can find my way there through people I already know. Yeah, that's good. So, so yeah, that's... Do people struggle with balancing things they can talk about and things they can't or is it is it like you were describing before where pretty much it's an open book and, and we're sharing you know, stories about, you know, what's going on and how we're doing things as a way to edify the community. Yeah. There's a, a real distinction between how we do things and what we're doing. And I am not as interested in what we're doing, right? I'm much more interested in how do you do all the stuff you have to do? So I'm talking to the head of user research at Uber, like, I don't really care if they're going into scooters or doing electric bikes or, like, none of that stuff matters. What I really want to know is, like, how do you do your job every day to improve the rider and driver experience, mm-hmm. you know? like, mm-hmm. And so getting people to talk about their technique, their philosophy and work, how they get, how they build their teams, how they, you know, how they have influence inside of organizations, like I've been talking about, you know, that seat at the table. Like, I find that stuff endlessly satisfying. But, like, whatever, I'll go look at tech meme for what, you know, Uber or Apple are doing next. Yeah. That's, you know, there's plenty of people that want to talk about the what and not the how. Okay, so so you get this idea that you want to stay, stay in the industry, stay, you know, current. Um, why a podcast? Like, why, why did that seem like the, the way to do it? Especially for a journalism major. Why? Right? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, why am it. I not like writing a weekly um, newsletter? Uh, a yep. weekly b- newsletter. Yeah, the newsletters are crazy right now. Like, I should be doing that. Uh, I honestly, I find writing so hard. Like, I feel like I have an aptitude for it. I feel like I'm pretty good at it. I started my career doing that. I wrote some books. They seem to be pretty well received. But uh, it is very different going out and. Uh, and arranging like a time to interview somebody and then 
doing that, like I do every other week is a new episode. So I'm like, oh, I got to find somebody next week. I got to do that. And I'm going to have a thing on my calendar that says, go talk to this person. Mm-hmm. And I have to, oh, I better prepare for that. So I read a bunch, you know, I probably do four or five hours of uh, research uh, before I talk to somebody. And uh, I got to get all this work done because on Tuesday we're talking, you know, yes. and then I got to get it done because the advertisers, I, I'm very fortunate to have like hooked up with a network, the Relay FM network phenomenal people that but they're like hey hey i gotta get two episodes per month per calendar month or i can't invoice and i'm like well i want you to be i don't want to you know affect their business yeah exactly so i do it right and that's so different from the kind of habit forming discipline of sitting down and writing and posting uh i could probably find a way to make that work but i realized that um uh after years and years of struggle with that i just i I found it really painful. So I thought, let me try this podcasting thing. Uh, It feels like a way to achieve some of those goals uh, using a mechanism that, that might be just a little bit more fluid. So. And how did you get connected with the relay guys? uh, A friend of mine. (laughs) <laughs> a podcast nice. on relay yeah a friend of mine merlin man yeah, okay great. okay go listen to all his his uh all of his podcasts he's fantastic i think he's a professional podcaster now i think that's what he does um he uh he, he actually he and i worked together at adaptive path we hired him uh i don't know 150 years ago shortly <laughs> after shortly after the first world war it seems like it was yeah. way back when uh and he he and i worked on some projects on adaptive path and we stayed connected again there you go right yeah. the network uh i reached out to him i'm like you podcast all the time i want to do it and he's like oh here go talk to mike and steven they're great and he just introduced me to the guys at relay and i chatted with them and they were like this sounds fun so let's do it nice okay so so talk to us now a little bit more about how you make decisions related to presentable right i mean there's a whole world of people you could bring on the show there's a whole world of topics you know you said you wanted to stay current you, you wanted to stay in the industry how do you decide, okay, in two weeks, I'm going to talk to so-and-so, or I'm going to reach out to this person, you know, for an interview that's going to happen a month from now or a month and a half from now. Mm. Like, how do you, how do you make all those decisions, picking shows, planning shows, going from an idea to an actual published show, um, those type of things? Well, it is usually, again, driven by, by desire to understand how, uh, how our industry, how our profession, how our craft are transforming over time, how they're evolving, how, they're, how we're getting better at what we do. So, uh, so I try to read pretty broadly on what's happening. A lot, again, mostly, if you ask me for a publication, I probably couldn't give you one, but I do find my way through my social networks, uh, through Twitter or uh, Instagram or who, wherever I'm looking at the people that I still, that I respect in the industry at what they're pointing to and reading. And I kind of look and see like, wow, all right, there's, there's clearly, uh, uh, a trend here and another trend here. And and people are thinking about this. So how can I learn more about that? Well, let's break it down. Right. So, um, there is, kind of a in the zeitgeist right now this idea that the user research methodologies that we developed over the past 20 years led to what i was referring to earlier with social media right we were so focused on making things for users that we created things that ended up being fairly destructive 
And it was really almost impossible to anticipate that that would be destructive, right? But the, the work we did on social media mechanisms and uh, kind of has led to this world where there's lots of, you know, fake news and manipulative social media posting and stuff like that. So how do we solve for that now? And how do we do it without throwing away everything that we learned about how to make products more effective for people to use, right? Well, that's a, that's a, there's so much in there. I'm like super, super interested in that. So wh what direction do I want to take it? Oh, uh, let's think. Well, like we did a lot of discovery research early on. That's sort of like, uh, like I was talking about contextual inquiry and anthropology and stuff like that. Why don't I talk to some people that do that all the time and say, how is that? How are those methods changing now based on what we're learning about how the world is and how the world is responding to digital products? Man, there's, I, there's probably 50 people I could go find that would have strong opinions on that. So let me go start working the network and find people like, all right, great, anthropologists or uh, ethnographers, people with that in their background. And, you know, what can we talk about there? Who mm -hmm. can I talk to and stuff like that? Oh, there's a whole ethical part of this who's thinking about that you know who's who's uh who's approaching this from the more philosophical point of view let me go find some of those people line that up you know so it kind of goes goes like that goes like that over and over again and how do you know when to how do you know when a topic is done you know like it's okay it's time to move on is it an active thing or is it really just your interest to go someplace else and next thing you know you're you're in a different world yeah, I, I mean, part of it is it gets a little less interesting over time. I'll give you a really okay. good example. You know, like uh, Google AMP pages? Or, yes. I don't know if you're familiar yes, with I that, am. right? Yeah. Like, this is essentially an attempt to make the mobile web experience better by telling content providers to put all their content on Google servers instead. And there was a big debate over like, well, yes, we want the web to be better uh, for, on, on mobile devices, uh, but no, probably having all of our media, like everything from the New York Times to the Huffington Post to who knows what else, probably not a good idea to have all of that coming through one central big company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? That's an yeah. interesting debate. Uh, and I did a couple of shows on that three years ago or something like that. Um, and I think we kind of hashed it out and kind of figured out like, oh, all right, there's probably stuff to learn from Google AMP and there's probably too much power in one place and stuff. And we talk, I talked to some designers and technical people and things like that. I'm kind of less interested in that conversation today. I feel like, like as an industry, we all kind of got to a place that, that felt all right. Uh, I'm sure there's more to talk about there, but I'm less interested in it now than I was three years ago. Yeah. You're having these conversations with, you know, interesting people in the design space. If I'm a listener of your show or if I'm somebody new to your show, right, what do you hope I take away from that show? <laughs> well, there's, uh, I think, a few different audiences for the show. Uh, and I probably have different takeaways for, for each. Uh, uh, in three kind of broad categories, I, uh, I try to speak to people who are leading design, people who have progressed in their career to the point where they are part of the decision-making of an organization and tend to have teams under them. I'm very interested in uh, how to improve their influence in their organizations. Uh, then I would say there's a whole 
range of uh, individual contributors, right? The people who are practicing design every day. I focus a little bit less on how to get better at your craft and a little bit more on do you have aspirations to be your boss, mm -hmm. right? To have your mm -hmm. boss's job, mm -hmm. right? Again, that like path of influence in design. And then I think there's a big, uh, a broad sort of category of people who are just interested in design but don't practice it. So lots of developers and uh, people in marketing and um, and other, you know, even business people that are like, this design thing keeps coming up. Can that improve my business? And so, uh, and for them, it's more of a message of, look, let me model for you what good organizations do. Uh, organizations that are mature in their user experience design practice and, and their product development practice and user-centered needs. Uh, let me model what that looks like for you so that you can start that journey within your org organization and find the people who could sit at the leadership table. So um, for me, it's the whole goal of this is around empowerment, around how for this whole category, right? Like half of product development is design, right? As I define it broadly. Mm -hmm. For all of those people in an organization which historically have been less powerful than people in technical positions. They have less budget, they have less, the fewer numbers of them uh, in the organization uh, and much less influence. How do we empower those people to be more powerful in their organizations so that they can then affect the quality of the experiences we have with our digital products every day? Okay how do you measure success, right? Like how do you, in, in your, you know, this is getting into the weeds and I intentionally want to get into the weeds for a second for you personally, you put out a show every two weeks, right? And how do you say, okay, this, sh this show is going well. This show is successful to me. Not, I don't mean to the world, right? But like, I am happy yep. with what's happening right now. What's your, what's your mechanism there? Yeah. Well, it's not downloads. I don't care. Okay. <laughs> I don't really, don't really look at it. I, I know, uh, but I also have the luxury of not caring about it because I am part of this network and they watch the numbers to make sure that they can sell ads against it. So if they're happy and advertisers are buying the slots, then I don't have to worry about that. Um, uh, I mean, there, there is some sense of a vanity metric of like, I wish more people would listen to it. Um, but that's also a goal of having the ideas that my guests are espousing exposed to more people. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's fine. Um, I'm, look, my goal is to become better informed at what is happening and changing in the world of design and product development. Um, so it is entirely my own. Like if I feel excited to talk to the guests every couple of weeks and I feel afterwards like that was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, then I'm, uh, then the project is successful, right? So, um, so that's really, uh, oh, actually, let me give you another one too, because I have kind of a, another motivation around it as well. So one is honestly like our good ideas getting exposed in the world in, a, in again, in that like open source way that we've been talking about. The other part of it is also at this point in my career, I realize that a lot of the community that makes digital products is pretty homogeneous, that it is a we have seen this sort of shift and change or, or if not change, at least be exposed in the last five or seven years, which is that so much of the, of the technology that exists in the world was designed, developed, built, conceived of by a small group of people, typically pretty well-educated, typically pretty male, pretty white, 
and typically all based in Silicon Valley. Okay. So much of the experience that the entire world uses is made by that sort of, you know, elite kind of 1% of the population, not in terms of their income, although that's also true, but in terms of who gets to be part of that process, right? Um, and that, I think we have accurately exposed that that feels unfair to our society, that our products are not good enough. Like when you make a social media product and it's entirely designed by people who have never been exposed to abuse before, then that's not a priority in how they make the decisions about the product. And that's, and we've seen that. We're like, oh, what happens, what's much better is when you have a much more diverse and inclusive set of people involved in influencing the product. So what can we do with my little podcast to help that? I, I asked myself a bunch of years ago. <laughs> and that is, as I'm like looking at the, the topics that I'm really interested in, you know, that, that what we were talking about a few minutes ago. And I say that, oh, look, there's like 20 people I could go talk to who would have strong opinions on that. Could I find the people whose voices have not been represented in the industry to be the voice of that idea? And that's more work, but I don't care because it's, uh, it's the point is to get those voices to be, uh, to, to again, to have the seat at the table, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. instead of just going to, you know, the, the obvious choices for thought leadership who have had a platform uh, uh, based on so much privilege, work a little harder and find a different a person who has not had that privilege. And it's a way of, again, exposure to the industry and, and uh, to the people who are making decisions. So yeah, that's, that's part of it too. Yeah, that's great. All right, so pros and cons of your many years talking to the internet, you know, good things that have happened, bad things that have happened, highlights low points what, what are all these things uh which ones pop up to your mind as i ask the question well yeah um i guess one of the things that i have struck i don't know if struggle is the right word but been very mindful of is that i spent the first like 15 years of my career uh let's just say from 1995 to 2010 i spent those years working so hard on building a personal brand because I realized the opportunity it would enable, right? Having written a book allowed me to get invitations to conferences where eventually I started to keynote those conferences and that made it really easy to get clients so we could start a company, a design agency that would then like had built in marketing, had a built in client base, right? Like that was all that work. It, it allowed me to very easily, uh, get introductions to venture capitalists so that I could start a company and, and finance that company because I had this history and I had been working on this brand. Like people knew who I was. Um, that was really an important thing I felt like in my career over time. Uh, and I realized then when social media really became our identities that I had been doing that for so long that my identity online was 100% professional. And I waited till later. I was 40 before I even had kids. Uh, so I waited later in life to be able to, to shift my priorities much more towards family and less mm -hmm. about all the work. Mm -hmm. And I realized, oh, I don't feel comfortable with sharing my, who I really am in this, <laughs> yeah. in this digital world. Like I'm not going to post pictures of my kids on yeah, Twitter yeah. because I have a lot of followers. I don't know who they are. I don't. And I realized like, oh, a lot of those avenues feel 
closed. Uh, and I never developed the muscle of like actually sharing with the people that I care about digitally uh, in a way that wasn't always just focused on advancing the brand and like, let me tell you about professionally and like, let's talk about the, the craft of design and entrepreneurialism and all of that. Uh, and so in many ways, if you go look at all my social media accounts, it's been years since I've posted really much mm -hmm. of anything. Okay. Um, and that's been this sort of retreat into like, all right, what do I really want? Like, um, certainly there's now much more room on the stage for other voices. I don't need to be out there doing that all the time. I still want to give back. And, um, I, I don't know. That's probably, uh, one of the things where I have really stepped back. What's one of the biggest highlights of, you know, your years talking to the internet? I feel like it has given me the opportunity to create things uh, that have meaning behind them. Um, but not just the things, but the act of the creation to me is one of the best things in the world. And, the, and what I mean by that is, is having a small group of insanely talented people who feel safe and vulnerable enough to be their most creative. When you get that chemistry right, that team right, it feels unstoppable. It feels like that notion of flow, right? We are right on the balance of mastery uh, and, um, uh, and failure, like right on the balance between the two the whole time. And what I have seen people capable of um, when they are part of a team like that is absolutely remarkable. It's, it's how I spend most of my time now trying to help our portfolio companies in, uh, in our venture capital fund, how do, how do we help them create that? What are the, like the cultural practices and, um, and all of the leadership skills to be able to create teams that are insanely creative, uh, as, as a way to do their, the best work of their careers. So, um, that has always been the highlight, like working with a small team inside of Google and analytics, working with the Typekit team, working inside of Adobe, like the adaptive path partners, like that level of, of cohesion, uh, is a remarkable experience. Yeah. I'm going to intentionally filter this next question because of your background, right? Cause right. you have, you have a, a unique background. Somebody wants to start talking to the internet, right? But they're not just, you know, me who's random, nobody doesn't really have a big network, you know, just kind of starting a thing just to start a thing. But instead, there's somebody who, you know, is, has been there has been in leadership at large, medium size organization. And they're saying, you know, there's a thing that I want to tell people, or there's a thing I think I can provide back to the community. But they've never talked to the internet before, right? Like they've been mainly in leadership or doing, you know, their job of whatever nature that is. What do you tell them? Right? When, they, when they're thinking about starting this process? Uh, a lot of the advice we've talked about before in that anybody can do this and should, right? Like it, the people who are already doing this and considered, again, quote unquote, thought leaders are no different than anybody else. Uh, they, uh, I, I think there's a tremendous opportunity still today to be able to share what you have learned in your profession or elsewhere if if anything there's there's even more of an opportunity to that um so uh 
perhaps trying to do public speaking as an avenue, right? And working your way through those sort of ranks. Like there are organizations now in various disciplines of like, we're going to have a meetup and uh, we only want first time speakers, you know, that kind of stuff to connect in your profession, in your craft. And that can be anything like sales, marketing, development, all the aspects of development, design, all of that, to find those communities where that's happening and say, can I have a shot? Can I have the stage? Can I do a 30-minute talk? All right. Um, I, I, I think it's very accessible. I don't think it's like too late or that the internet is too crowded. I don't think any <laughs> of that. I don't think any of that is true. Okay. Um, and I think public speaking is a great way to start because of that, again, that imposed deadline of I've got to organize my thoughts and uh, be able to fill up the 30 minute time slot. And that's going to happen uh, in, you know, coming up in six weeks. Like I got to do it. Right. Yeah. That kind of stuff. I think it's a wonderful way of getting started. Alrighty. Are you ready for the lightning round or the unlightning <laughs> yes. round? Sure. You bet. Okay. And just to remind everybody, Jeff does not know these questions. Uh, overall, what is your favorite content on the internet? My favorite content on the internet. Uh, can I can I answer in two parts? Like sure, I yeah. think right, I think the practicing the designers who are practicing and publishing the medium, I read that every day. Like I just think there's great stuff. And I, I wouldn't direct you to any specifics, just all all of the design stuff that's happening on, on medium is great. Then uh, on my off hours, man, I just love watching YouTube. It's just remarkable. Again, remember when I said like I feel like every every day is an opportunity to learn more, growth mindset? Like the unbelievable of amount of crazy good content for learning new things on YouTube is fantastic. I just love it. Okay. Second one, your overall favorite personality on the internet. Hmm. My favorite personality on the internet. I think right now it's CGP gray. He is a, uh, you go listen to the hello, uh, hello internet podcast. He's fantastic. Uh, and he's also got a YouTube channel where he illustrates uh, really interesting sort of topics in society. Um, you should put a link in the show notes. He's really, really good. Yeah. Okay. All right. So a creator show content that you would consider on the rise, right? So it's not necessarily like in my mind, you know, uh, CGP Gray is like, he's already out there. Established. Everybody knows. Yeah. He knows. Everybody knows about him. But what's something that's on the rise that people should check out? I, uh, the, I pause because there are like 15 different shows on the, re <laughs> on, on the Relay FM network. Just frankly. go with them. Just wrap yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, uh, putting me on the spot here. Um, it's, been, it's been around for a while, but you could go listen to Connected or Analog. I think both of those are just so good. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think like inside the, the little niche of like we talk about the Mac all of the time or, or Apple products all of the time, they would not feel like they're on the rise. They feel very established. But I think for the broader world, there's so much you can learn from them. And, they, and, and I, think, I think, frankly, the Relay Network um, ha has the opportunity to, to, to leave these smaller communities, or not leave these smaller communities, but to stand on top of them into a much more sort of almost global co conversation. Um, I think they're doing such good work. Awesome. Uh, you're only allowed, so let's say, you know, in a hypothetical situation, you know, we put you in quarantine, right? You're not allowed <laughs> to go anywhere. You're not allowed to do anything. But <laughs> in, this hypothetical, <laughs> yeah, in this hypothetical situation, right, we also limit your ability 
and you can only listen or watch one thing on the internet. What is the one thing? And you can do like the whole season, or if they're like a weekly show, you can listen every week, right? Or watch it every week, but it's only one, you know, entity, only one brand, if you will. Oh, that's so hard because I feel like it's a endorsement as well. And I, um, I can only watch one thing. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to give you a, uh, I'm going to give you a very personal answer. You should just watch the new Queer Eye on Netflix. Oh my God, it's so good. Okay. <laughs> all right. So there we go. Um, all right. And then the final, final one. Um, what was your favorite large company to work for? My favorite large company to work for was probably Adobe. I mean, I've only kind of, well, I worked for three. I worked for Lycos, and that was terrible. Um, I worked for uh, Google, and that was hard. It was a struggle. Yeah. Um, it was a remarkable work, and it was a remarkable company, but it was at, at a time when design was not just devalued, but often looked at with aggression. So it was really hard to be there and practice what I was practicing. Okay. Uh, it's a very different place now. Oh, this is the lightning round. Um, no, you're good. No, you're good. This, this, this last one, this last one is, is the open-ended you know, all right. Yeah. yeah. So keep going. But the work that we did at Adobe was just so powerful, so strong and, and so transformative to a 30 year old company that, you know, had to completely change its business model and the, the openness to the process of doing it from a, uh, a UX point of view was just remarkable. It was, and I learned so much. Oh my God. I learned so much. Um, it was Adobe. Yep. Fantastic. Jeff, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, you know, we learned a, a lot from you and uh, you gave us a, a really good and interesting perspective on, you know, just tying everything together, right? Um, talking to the internet and, and the different ways that you, that can happen. Uh, where can people learn more about you or find more about your work? Uh, you, can, uh, you, can, you can see the sort of biography and, and all of that at about.me slash veen. Um, that's where I kind of uh, I, I have a little kind of overview and that's got links to other things that I do. Um, I'm at Veen, V-E-E-N, Twitter. Um, but like I said, I, I've been sort of scaled back from social media for a little while. So not a lot uh, happening over there. Uh, but then I think um, where I'm putting most of the effort that we, we spoke about in this conversation is at uh, Presentable, presentable.fm as part of the, is the podcast. So um, go have a listen and, uh, and let me know what you think. Wonderful. Uh, thanks again, Jeff. Um, if you want to know more about this show, uh, you can find us on Twitter at, at TTTI Podcast uh, or on uh, the internet at www.talkingtotheinternet.com. So thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks for learning with us, and I look forward to uh, being with you next time. Bye bye. Joshua Production.